When I say financial stability, you say, what the hell are you talking about? I'm a writer. The grind of making sure you can pay your rent as well as make work is real. And we're all guilty of biting off more than we can chew sometimes. If there's a universal observation that could be made on the art of writing, it's that there are as many different ways to be a writer as there are writers in the world. In this episode, we look at how to balance work with more work, learning your limits and the gear shifts required when you have multiple different forms of labour on your plate. We spoke to wearer of many hats, including writer, editor and union representative, Marissa Wickramanayaka, about her many roles and when it's probably a good idea to start using the word no. I'm Izzy roberts the Artistic Director of the Festival. And I'm Ruby Rose Pivot-Marsh. I'm the Digital Producer at EWF. Uh, so this episode we're talking about balancing the many jobs, many roles, uh, the many ways to have a writing career. Could you tell us a little bit about, I guess, the different kinds of roles that you have? I do creative writing, so I write novels, short stories. So then I also work as an editor. So when I work as an editor, I'm working on manuscripts, but also academic work and things like that. Basically anything people want to give me, I will edit. And I also work as a journalist. So that's the more sort of anything nonfiction that I would write would probably be more journalism at this point. And I'm also, as mentioned, I'm a union delegate, so I often have a union hat on as well. And I'm also involved in all these other side projects as well. The First Nations and People of Colour Writers Count project went live this week and I've been involved in that. So when I'm thinking about that, I have to put that hat on. I'm involved in things like I'm on the Ethics Committee for the Union, so sometimes I have to make judgments on that. I'm involved in the National Freelancers Committee for the Union, so sometimes I'm going along. And I'm just talking about freelancing or sometimes... Even more so um, because we don't have representatives from all sorts of freelancing on the committee yet. I'm sometimes uh, aware that I'm representing people like comic artists, for example, uh, and their concerns until we can get someone on the committee and things like that. So um, there'll be other freelancers um, in different professions that the union covers that I'll be uh, representing and I have to kind of have that sort of hat on um, and know about their issues. And also, I'm going to be involved soon in a pay rates working group with the Institute of Editors. So sometimes I'm on these things just as someone coming along, representing concerns. Sometimes I'm actually involved in projects and things. Do you ever sleep? (laughs) Yes, I do. I do sleep. And I do, like, sometimes I just... I just have a very long day or like a burst of energy and I just do a lot at once. And sometimes I'm just on my phone a lot and a lot of it is emails and a lot of it is responding to stuff in real time. And some of the stuff I get asked quite often boils down to like, who do you know? It's like, look, I might be a diverse person, but I don't know everybody. (laughs) I tried. I tried to sleep. Sometimes when I sleep, I sleep for like 12 hours at a stretch. (laughs) Very necessary. But sometimes I'm up all night as well. Especially with that much on your plate. Mm. Well, I'm glad to hear that, you know, you're not actually an artificially intelligent um, (laughs) android that is joining (laughs) us today. But that is is really an impressive amount on your plate. Yeah, it's a lot. Are they sort of things that just um, come to you organically through, like you were saying, you don't know everyone, but you probably are approached by people a lot? 
Yeah, I think like through uh, the MEAA, that's how I got onto the ethics committee and the freelance committee. Freelance because we were pushing for a campaign for freelancers and things like that. And we just realized that um, as well as the usual committees, it was much better to also have an official committee that we could then have representatives on with plan things and then take it to the main committees and push things through then and that was much easier because um, we didn't often have the time with all the other union business to sit and work out and strategize and plan in the main committees much better to take it aside do it and then go forward but also because when you see problems uh, coming up like sometimes you just have to get a group of people together and push forward to find a solution for it rather than um, waiting for someone else to fix it and I think because I, I want to do that. I see problems and I see solutions as well. And um, so I try to get involved. But I also say no now, which is good. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I'm involved in the sense that I go to women in media events and things, but they ask me, they've asked me to join committees before and things like that. And I've just gone like, no, no, I can't. I can't do it anymore. <laughs> so. Was that um, a lesson that you had to learn? To say no to things or? Yeah, I think everybody does. Mm. Yeah. There was a lot of consideration um, about running for election for the union as well, whether to take certain positions on or not. And I always try to now find out what's involved and what I can do. There's no point in me taking on a role if I can't actually work towards a goal with it. Otherwise, there's just no point. There's n- I, I'm not interested in taking on a role just for the sake of having a title. So something we've been thinking about a bit as well is how creatives, writers in particular, balance the work, the creative work that they do with other work. And on the one hand, it's we need to be banding together and fighting to make sure that the conditions we have for folks are fair mm-hmm. and trying to really generate national conversation as well around the conditions for artists, you know, making sure that we're not, the wages aren't just constantly being driven down. But on the other hand, you know, how is it that you balance that, your freelancing? How is it that you balance all of those many things that you do? Because that is also, on the other hand, the reality for many yeah. folks is that there's there's a lot on everyone's plates. Yeah. I, I struggle with this all the time because I, I, I set up a new routine where I have a particular time of day where maybe I'm working on a novel and then the rest of the time I'm doing the freelance work because I feel very guilty if I work on one or the other and then I'm always thinking, oh, you know, the time I'm spending on this, I could be spending on the other thing. So it's very difficult and I get that and I'm trying uh, my ideal routine would be like okay I'm getting up early in the morning I'm writing the book and then from about nine o'clock onwards I'm doing my freelancing but and that worked for a little while this year and I got so much done on the book and but it's not done my current one I'm not completely done with it but then life happens so I had a lot of things hit me um, and then when life happens I thought I'd planned for this as well, <laughs> um, but it, yeah, it just it just knocks you like um, you have you have days then when you have to cope and you have to like kind of take a mental health break or um, you end up spending time in bed catching up on sleep or you I'm staying up late trying to just finish stuff and get work done. Yeah, the whole thing goes out the window, so it's something I struggle with all the time. So I'm grateful for all the little bits of time I have where I can get small things done and out of the way. So. If I've got 10 minutes and I know I need to respond to emails, I can do that on my phone, for example. So I'm always finding ways in which the things are either automated or made easier for me so that when I do have snippets of time, I can like 
quickly finish stuff off. <laughs> I really love there's a, an American poet called Anne Boyer mm-hmm. and she has a beautiful kind of lyric essay in her book Garments Against Women mm-hmm. called Not Writing, mm-hmm. um, which is available online on poetryfoundation.org. But that is really kind of talking about the life getting in the way parts yeah. of writing and actually how that is essential to the process. Yeah. So, you know, it kind of goes through all of these domestic duties that she has to fulfill as a, a carer for a child and, you know, a human being in the world mm-hmm. and all of the projects that she's not working on. Yeah. But I really feel, yeah, the impact of it is to to know that the living is part of the writing. Yeah, um, definitely. Which I personally feel often makes me feel, yeah, a lot better about the, the balancing acts mm-hmm. that we all have to do. Yeah, I used to get up at four in the morning and write for about two and a half hours and that was wonderful for me as well. I, I really loved it. Once I'm, once I'm into it, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. And then afterwards, like I had to give myself a little gap because it was hard, much as I wanted to start doing all my journalism and my editing work, just to shift from creative writing into that. I had to go away, go for a walk, come back, sit down and everything. And much as I felt accomplished, it was still hard to get started on my work day. So I guess... That leads nicely into sort of asking about whether you have any advice for people for est- establishing a routine, maybe not a 4 a.m. Um, <laughs> um, or maybe not staying up until 4 a.m. Because the reality of so many people in this industry is that they are wearing many hats at a time. I think definitely like write down everything that you have to do. I had to just basically categorize my life and go okay what are the things I need to work on and what do I have to say no to and I have a lot of projects and things that I want to get started on and everything and I had to say no okay I'm doing one book at a time I'm not going to give myself a deadline for said book I'm going to take it as it comes as long as I'm writing something each day I'm happy you know like not giving yourself goals that make you feel so awful each day that you don't fulfill Mm -hmm. them like trying to learn what your limits are I guess So if you say to yourself, I want to write a thousand words a day, that's probably going to drive you crazy trying to find the time to write a thousand words a day. Whereas if you just say, okay, I'm going to write, I'm going to take one hour a day and I'm going to write within that hour. And even if I just write one word, that's sufficient. I've done, I've get to get, and you know that you're getting there closer and closer. Mm. Yeah. So each day that you build on it. If you say in 30 days, I want to have a complete book, you're going to probably drive yourself nuts. And I had to cut um, other things out. I had to say no to committees and things. I had to try and dial back my union stuff to... I tried to set it to like Mondays in the evenings for one hour. <laughs> so I just reply to it on, on the fly now. And I've just kind of said, okay, in my head, maybe a couple of hours a week is as much as I can devote to that. Shaitan is an essayist and critic currently based in Melbourne. Reading from her fittingly titled zine to all the shit jobs I've worked before, Cher told us about her time as an AFL water girl and discussed the ways in which jobs and writing may not always be one and the same thing. So tell us a bit about some of the shit jobs that you've worked before. Oh, it's been a lot. I mean, I've I currently earn most of my income cleaning houses. Um, I've worked as a cook for many years. I was a commerce chef, a dishwasher, a life drawing model, an AFL amateur league water girl for a short amount of time when I first moved to Adelaide, um, retail assistant, waitress, all kinds of things. 
would you mind reading us a bit of the work from your zine? Sure. I've only lived in Australia for three months, slowly subsisting off savings from my life modelling job amidst other punk lent endeavours like dumpster diving and others I shall not mention. On a reckless whim, I've decided that yes, an international romantic relationship can happen, even though we're both young and unsure of the bureaucracies behind orchestrating something like this. We're deeply in love and we decide to do it anyway. A close, well-off friend generally lends me $10,000 so I can put it in my bank account and look like I have money if the Australian authorities ever check. I've used it since and I still owe her this money, seven years later. Between researching how I can properly live in this country as a non-tertiary educated migrant with no career prospects, I find myself without regular income. I mentioned this at a punk show and my new friend Amy says I can totally work cash in hand, a concept I hadn't heard of before. Amy does cash in hand work to evade taxation. And one of these jobs is to be a water girl at amateur league AFL games at various leafy Adelaidean suburbs. Having little interest in any kind of sport, I had never heard of Australian rules football until now. The job at $50 a pop involves running out to a location in the field as soon as he noters a little break in the game because the boys need to be hydrated. On my first day, I turn out up in a metal t-shirt even though everyone's in athletic clothes. It didn't cross my mind to try and look sporty, even though if you think about it, of course you're supposed to look sporty at sports. I also run out at the wrong time, and someone yells, Oi, China! at me. Despite its blatant racism, I don't feel offended, merely amused at their inaccurate guess. I haven't felt the real sting of racism yet, but I feel like a fish out of water. Amy and I don't drive, so the woman who's in charge of hiring the girls come to pick us up in a convenient spot in the city. These games are sometimes in the outer suburbs, and Adelaide's public transport is too inefficient to promise a direct route to these secluded ovals. The woman, Ophelia, is friendly and talkative, commenting on nearly everything we see on these car rides. How Australiana, she chuckles when we arrive at a suburb full of Australian flagged houses one day. At that point, I don't know what that means, but I don't know how to feel about nationalism in a country I wasn't born in either. Under Amy's guidance, I learned how to watch the game. It's heteronormativity in plain view, as the water girls cluster around between water breaks to pick up their favourites. Which one's your favourite? a girl asks me one day. I stammer and shrug, because I've never socialised in a gendered fashion in school as a result of being a loner. I find rituals like this difficult. They laugh. I laugh nervously. It's okay. I'm just a token weirdo in the sea of normalcy. Unlike Amy, I've never fully learnt to hide it. This is cemented one day when Amy tells me a funny story about guy she's fucking, and I cackle like a maniac, howling, No! loudly at halftime, and all the boys are clustered together paying attention to tips from their coach. Everyone turns around to stare at me in annoyed bewilderment. Thanks, Cher. There's a lot around role-playing, I suppose, within that piece and what it is to exist in particular spaces and, you know, rocking up in your metal T-shirt and... Uh, not wearing athletics wear or, you know, standing out within that space. Can you tell us a bit about that, the impact of that kind of idea on your work more broadly? Yeah, I think when we appear in certain spaces, we end up performing the role that we think that we should be doing. Mm. 
And I guess in terms of writing, you know, most people come from middle and upper classes, so you, you try and hide the fact that you stand out from, from it more. And then as a result, everyone ends up sort of becoming the same and no one really knows where each person comes from in that regard. So do you find now that you're encountering other people who are sort of performing as well and do you know how to recognise that and whether that has an impact on the way you move in a space? I think it's not so much about recognising whether others others are performing but rather that we're all sort of performing together mm-hmm. and that changes from place to place that we end up in and I think in the arts there is a huge emphasis on standing out from the crowd but at the same time there are limits as to how you can do that due to you know institutions due to etiquette things like that. I'm interested in the impulse to make a zine so this is a creative outcome that is strongly linked to non-creative forms of labor I suppose if you will. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit about why you wanted to make this. I think I was thinking a lot about the working trajectory that I've had, especially now that my writing is somewhat recognised. I was trying to think about that in juxtaposition with my writing career, inverted commas, and thinking about how my actual resume is actually very patchy and doesn't have anything of worth or note that most people would consider. And as a result... I put it all together to sort of reflect on this path that I've led. I guess I wanted to make the zine as well to sort of point out that class is very complicated. While I may, you know, be doing all these jobs, I'm also culturally middle class or the people they interact with who are working class may not be what most people think, etc., etc., We don't have that many transparent conversations um, a lot of the time, although, you know, things shift, they tend to, but within the creative industries more broadly about how people get paid, what they get paid for, what the breakdown of what it is that they're doing is. And thinking about social media, for example, as well, often the narrative of the successful artist is really important to folks and they want to focus on the publications that they're they're getting accolades for or you know the things that they're successfully doing and nobody really wants to talk about their cleaning job as part of what they do and you know it's that sort of push to the sideline and I think as well because it's uh it's uncomfortable to talk about class and it's 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 uncool to talk about money and you know this is seen as something that's like on the nose and it shouldn't be part of the conversation we have a bit of a cultural cringe about it I feel yeah and I think and I think when we all try and hide it whether we come from upper class or lower class in society we end up being seen sort of as the same and as a result the issues don't get broached as openly it becomes a lot more uncomfortable when upper middle class people try and act poor say they're broke and you know all the time and then obviously people who are working class who are in the arts wouldn't wouldn't say that and then it becomes this weird leveler and it it destroys some of the nuance there I think as well and something I find really fascinating is people's own perception of their class is often Mm. really off and really bizarre you know across this continent exactly so there's these odd perceptions Mm. I think sometimes that people have around where they fit in and perhaps it's because we don't talk to each other about it enough yeah, exactly. And then I think it comes down to choice as well. 
and a certain sense of entitlement that comes with people going like, oh, I should have more. You know, I'm, I'm a poor artist, so I should be getting this grant or that grant, that sort of stuff. And, yeah, like I said, it becomes this weird leveller that doesn't get addressed. And I wonder if that's also something to do with Melbourne as a location or Australia and that, like, a lot of our populations are sort of city-based, so there's people's perception of class and sort of gets maybe a bit skewed by that. I'm not sure if that's an accurate thing to say or not. Well, I think when we look at societal populations as a whole, there's people who's economically rich but culturally poor Mm. or culturally rich and economically poor. And I think in the arts, people try and strive towards the latter regardless of whether they're economically rich or poor. And that sort of extends towards this sense of that inner city sort of vibe. And we're a product of the bubbles that we live in, I suppose, Mm -hmm. as well. I wonder, Cher, if you have any advice for folks who are trying to fit their creative work in alongside their economic work that they also need to do. There needs to be a lot of mental preparation. That is going to be a really tough slog. There's going to be a lot of discouragement a lot of negative feelings really when you see your peers not having to toughen it out as much and I don't know I I wouldn't say I have any advice per se but just be mentally prepared that it's not going to be easy thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Writers Festival podcast this year the festival runs from the 19th to the 29th of June in Melbourne You can catch Marissa at the National Writers' Conference event, The Future of Labour, at the Wheeler Centre on Saturday the 22nd of June at 1.30pm and at the Dandy Slam Imagining Home, also on June 22nd at 6.30 at the Walker Street Gallery and Arts Centre in Dandenong. Cher will be reading her response to the festival exhibition titled Future Truths when it launches at Loop Bar and Project Space on June 24th from 6pm. See the full Emerging Writers Festival program and book tickets online at emergingwritersfestival.org.au. Full artist bios for this episode are available on the website and in the show notes on SoundCloud. Our theme music for the podcast is the magical Huntley's Please from their EP Songs in Your Name. You can check them out on Facebook at Huntley Music and listen to their recently released debut album Low Grade Buzz wherever you normally find your music. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that First Nations peoples are the first storytellers of this land and that their sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to the Elders of the lands that this podcast reaches.